0: We are living, as Art prayed, in anxious times. There are so many things for us to be anxious about, especially as Christians. Uh, We worry who will win the next presidential election. We worry, will the church in America begin to face outright persecution? Uh, We worry, especially in light of the statistics I shared last week, will uh, the church generally, and our church in particular, even continue on as more and more young people grow out without any exposure to the faith. We worry about our own children. Will they grow up to know and love Jesus, especially as they face pressure to not follow Jesus? And yet, of all these issues we worry about, almost all of them are entirely or almost entirely out of our hands. The issues that we face and the circumstances that are developing around us seem inevitable and seem impossible to overcome. Sure, we can vote in this year's election, but our vote is only one out of approximately 155 million. Sure, we can teach our children to know and love Jesus, to see the beauty of Christ, the glory of God, and the grace in the gospel. And yet, ultimately, we can't make them Christians Sure, we can be faithful in evangelism and discipling. We can even take steps to proactively reach Generation Z. But ultimately, it's God who preserves his church. And the impossible situations we face are only likely to increase as Christianity continues to lose influence in our culture. So we face questions like, What do I do when my employer asks me to compromise my conscience or lose my job? What will I do when someone I love asks me to use their preferred pronouns? What will I do when someone I love asks me to attend a marriage, a wedding, to someone of the same sex? Now, I know these questions are not simply abstract and theoretical for many of you. Some of them are already facing questions just like these. And in our anxious age, we're going to face many impossible situations just like this. The question I want to ask this morning is, what are we to do? What are we to do when we face the impossible? Last week, we began our sermon series in the book of Daniel that we're calling Living in Exile. And we said this is not the first time that the people of God have experienced such a radical shift in cultural influence and political power. But rather, the exiles of Judah in Daniel's day experienced a similar and likely even more drastic and dramatic disorientation as they were taken from Israel into Babylon, where the Babylonians had different cultural customs, different moral norms, different religious convictions, and they had to figure out how to live faithfully in that place. And it's in the midst of circumstances like this that the book of Daniel taught them and teaches us how to live faithfully and hopefully in exile, in a world, in a kingdom that's not our own, in view of our God, who never changes, and is sovereign over all the nations. And so today, as we continue through Daniel, we'll see particularly in Daniel chapter 2, what we are to do when we face impossible situations. And we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us that we must depend upon God for wisdom to face the impossible. And we'll see in particular four reasons that we must depend upon God For wisdom to face the impossible. First, because even the greatest human wisdom is insufficient. Because God is the source of all wisdom. Because the kingdom of God, only the kingdom of God, will last forever. And because our dependence displays God's glory. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray for his help. Father, we do confess that many of us are anxious about many things. So as we come to your word this morning and feel overwhelmed by the situations and circumstances we face, we pray that you would give us hope, you would give us faith, you would give us wisdom for how to navigate them. Teach us to depend upon you. Teach us to abide in you. And most importantly, teach us to treasure Christ. And so, Lord, as I preach your word, I ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately. So as we come from this place, we would see that Jesus... Is wisdom personified, and we would come to depend upon him for all the wisdom we could ever need. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, please use the Bible uh, under your seat or the seat next to you. Uh, You can follow along there. If you're not familiar with the scriptures, Daniel chapter 2 is found on page 737 of our community Bibles. You'll be looking uh, for a big, bold number 2. That's a chapter. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, please consider this our gift to you. We would be delighted for you to engage God's Word, not just today, but every day throughout the week. Perhaps consider reading the Gospel of Mark so that you would learn about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now, today, for the sake of time, I'm not going to be reading our passage in its entirety, but simply summarizing it along the way. And so I'd encourage you uh, to follow along as best as you can. But then this afternoon, this evening, uh, some other time, find a time to read Daniel 2 uh, to see that what I was saying today is actually grounded in the Scriptures. Uh, But once you've found Daniel chapter 2, take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's Word. You know what anxieties and burdens you're carrying this morning. You know where you need wisdom. Ask that God would speak the words you need this morning. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. I'm ready. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. In verses 1 through 11, we see first that we must depend on God for wisdom to face the impossible, because even the greatest human wisdom is insufficient. Even the greatest human wisdom is insufficient. As our chapter opens, we learn that King Nebuchadnezzar is a relatively young king. He's only in the second year of his reign, and he's troubled by a dream that he's having night after night after night, and he is so alarmed by this dream, actually, that he can't even sleep. And why would a dream trouble a king so much? Well, one commentator explains in Babylonia, people believe that the gods often spoke through dreams. It must be an important message then if the dream comes back night after night. And yet Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know what the dream means. And so a king in his position did what all kings would do. He summons all the enchanters, all the magicians, all the astrologers, all his wise men to come and interpret the dream for them. And they are only too happy to oblige him, respectfully wishing that he as king would live forever and requesting him to tell them the dream so that they can then tell the interpretation. However, to the absolute horror of these wise men, King Nebuchadnezzar refuses. He tells them they need to tell him both the dream and its interpretation. And then he even raises the stake. He says, if you can't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb. You'll be put to death. But if they do, they'll receive gifts, reward, and great honor. Yet even after the stakes are raised, even after their lives are threatened, they say, this is impossible. They cannot do what the king has demanded. Now they could have potentially invented an interpretation if he had given them the dream and not been exposed or found out as liars. But any attempt to just describe the dream, they would immediately discredit themselves. And so once again, they implore the king, tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. But in response, the king doubles down on his demand. These wise men must tell him both the dream and the interpretation. And then we begin to get a hint of why. In verse 8, he says, I know with certainty... You're trying to gain time. In other words, they're just trying to buy more time until when? Until the times change. In other words, they're just waiting, hoping maybe he'll die. Maybe he'll be deposed. Maybe someone will overthrow this kingdom and we'll be okay. And he also reveals that in verse 9, you've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words. In other words, he fears that if I tell you the dream, you'll just make something up in order to get me to lay off. And so he demands that they provide the dream and its interpretation, knowing that if they can first tell the dream, then they must be in touch with the gods, and then providing the accurate interpretation. And so, with the wise man, the wise uh, with that, the wise men plead one more time: "You're being unreasonable. No other king has ever asked for something like this. Besides, what you're asking is literally impossible." The only way someone could possibly reveal the dream is if the gods do it. But the gods don't dwell with human flesh. And this final plea exposes the limitations of the God they worship. And from a biblical perspective, it exposes the limitations of human wisdom. For these gods are not gods at all, but are rather idols made by human hands. And so let's not miss the point then. This king king over the greatest empire in the known world at that time, has access to the cream of the crop, the best of the best, and yet none of them, none of them are able to provide what he needs. The greatest of human wisdom is insufficient. Neither they nor their gods are up to the task. But in contrast with these Babylonian gods whose dwelling is not with flesh, the God of Israel, the God of Daniel, is the one who promises to dwell with his people. And if we were to fast forward 500 years or so, we would see in the Gospel of John that Jesus is identified as the one who was with God from the very beginning and who is God himself. And he is revealed then as the Word made flesh, as wisdom personified. The God we worship, like Babylonian gods, is transcendent and set apart. He is utterly different. He does not dwell in houses made by human hands, and yet. At the very same time, unlike the Babylonian gods, our God is also accessible, knowable, dwelling with us. And in fact, he has not only dwelt among us, he has become one of us. And this is why we must depend upon God for wisdom to face the impossible. Because even the greatest human wisdom is insufficient, especially when we compare it to the wisdom of our infinite, eternal God who has entered into our finite human experience. And yet, just like the Babylonians, far too often when we face difficult circumstances and possible situations, our go-to is not the wisdom of God, but it's the human wisdom. We may not turn to traditional gods like those of Babylon, but we turn to the modern gods of our day, things like hard work, creativity, and even technology. But ultimately... All these things are insufficient. When we face a difficulty, we're urged, when at first you can't succeed, try and try again. And while hard work is not at odds with the Christian faith, what happens when the challenge you're facing is beyond your competency, beyond your hard work, as it was beyond the work of the magicians and wise men in Babylon? Well, then we're crushed under the weight of despair. When we come across a new situation, we're urged to respond creatively to the new problem. And while, again, creativity is not at odds with the Christian faith, what happens when we're just not that creative? Such expectations happen even in pastoral ministry. I remember interacting with someone who was not all that familiar with my philosophy of preaching to simply go through books of the Bible, and they said, how do pastors come up with topics week after week after week? How do they have such creativity? Well, thank God, being a pastor does not depend upon creativity, or I wouldn't be a pastor. I'm just not that creative. But finally, when we have a question we don't know the answer to, where do we typically turn? It used to be that we would turn to people we know, to experts in the field, and often to the church, and to pastors in particular. But now if you have a question... Our first instinct is often to turn to Google. In 2023, Google had 8.5 billion, 8.5 billion searches a day. And on the one hand, there is nothing at odds with technology. In fact, I Googled how many Google searches per day in order to get that (laughs) statistic. (laughs) Yet the problem is we go to Google not just for mere facts and information, but also to get wisdom. Some of the most Googled questions include things like, who am I? Where can I find happiness? How many genders are there? And Google can be a great place to get basic facts and mere information about life, but it is a horrible place to go for wisdom. And with recent developments in artificial intelligence, the temptation to look to technology will only grow further. Now, there are many things that we can appreciate about the way AI is being used. Uh, Someone was just telling me this week that AI is now being used to summarize meeting and emails. Thank God for productivity. Uh, Rebecca was telling me how AI is now being used to summarize Amazon reviews so you don't have to sort through thousands to figure out what people don't like, what they do like, and where their reviews conflict. And I even appreciate the ways AI now generates voices that are pleasant to listen to, to read articles Uh, that otherwise you would have to read and print. However, in our temptation to embrace technological innovation, we need to remember the limits of technology, which is a form of human wisdom. In particular, we need to be wary of the often repeated adage, technology itself is neither good nor evil, it's simply a morally neutral tool, and what matters is how we use it. And while that's a well-intentioned phrase... It's misleading at best and a lie at worst. Tools always are designed with a purpose. Think, you could use a screwdriver to try to hammer a nail in. You could try to use a hammer to screw in a screw. But each of those tools have a purpose, and if they're not used according to their purpose, they won't work. And we need to recognize our digital technologies have the same sort of design. They are tools with a purpose, And because of the kind of tool they are, they have a significant influence over us. And generally speaking, our digital technologies are designed, among other things, to cultivate a love for access to information, speed and efficiency, interruption to our day, how many text messages will distract you, how many notifications will take you out of the moment into something else. And finally, they're designed for entertainment. And for years, all this has been used by Google, Amazon, and social media in order to cultivate in us consumerism. They've used these kind of strategies to put before us stuff we want, things we desire. And now, with new generative AI, things that are actually creating, not just looking through information, the ease of access to information encourages us to come to it for quick and easy answers, rather than to go to places that will require more effort more patience, and as in any relationship, give and take where you might find an opinion you don't like. For example, ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence released in November of 2022, was specifically designed to handle a wide range of conversational tasks and to generate responses both to questions and simply to prompts that mimic a human response. And so now people can turn to ChatGPT, not just Google, to get not just a curated list of highly visited and relevant websites, but also to simply get succinct and even substantive answers to their questions that mimic the response of a real person. But there are some significant problems with ChatGPT, even though it often cranks out surprisingly good answers. First, when it comes to things like medical guidance, it'll tell you, I'm not a doctor you should go see a doctor in order to be evaluated. But if you ask it religious, spiritual, or theological questions, it will spout off answers with all the assumption it's correct, but never once tell you, I'm not a pastor, and you ought to talk to real people about life's most important questions. Second, if you ask ChatGPT for Christian life advice, it'll only give you the most conventional Christian wisdom, highly individualistic, self-expressive, Wrote answers. Third, even though ChatGPT has nearly unlimited access to all the resources and information on the internet, the AI application at times provides inaccurate or even false information. And yet it does so, sounding plausible. But you can't always trust its answer. And this is in part because on the internet, surprise, surprise, there are conflicting sources of information. Not everything you read on the internet is true. And finally then, when you're searching for wisdom, not just facts, not just data, a robot can't give you the wisdom you need to live your life specifically, but only what is true generally. For example, ChatGPT might be able to tell you, as Christian parents, we're all trying to balance law and grace. On the one hand, we want to teach our children to obey God's word, To honor us and to respect all authority and to understand that a failure to do so leads to consequences. On the other hand, we recognize that our children aren't capable of obeying God's law apart from God's grace and the work of the Spirit. And so we want to teach them to obey God in dependence upon his grace, out of love for God and in response to God's love for us. Not merely to conform to a standard we fear. But consider this symptom. You have a rebellious teenager. What are the underlying causes for that? Are they rebellious because you've never disciplined them? You've leaned into grace so much that they've never been taught that actions have consequences and so they live however they please? Or are they rebellious because you've leaned the other way and you've been so rigid and authoritarian that they've never learned to love God's word but instead have come to hate God's law? Or... Does their rebellion have nothing to do with your parenting whatsoever? Chat GPT might be able to tell you what you generally ought to do about a teen's rebellious behavior. But because AI learned to give us the answers we want and can't see how you're actually parenting, it won't be able to give you wisdom specifically. There's no room for opinions that are different than yours. it will just begin to feed you what you want to hear. There's no way for someone who sees you, knows you, and loves you to come in and say, hey, the reason your teen is rebelling might be the very last thing you want to hear. But this is actually what God and in his infinite wisdom has given Christians the local church for. He has given us one another to walk the way of wisdom with Christ and with each other. And so hard work, creativity, and technology are quite possibly, in our modern day, the greatest forms of human wisdom. But they will always be insufficient in the face of impossible situations. And yet nevertheless, we will still be tempted to turn to these and other forms of human wisdom when we face life's most difficult circumstances. And so I'd ask you, what are the sources of human wisdom are you overly dependent on? Are you quick to simply try harder and harder, to work longer to fix your problems? Do you rely on your competency and creativity to solve all your problems? And when you have a question, when you're facing a challenge, is your quick response to search for quick answers on Google, on the internet, rather than to lean into community that might give you a hard word you don't want to hear? Is your response to go to the internet to find advice that might actually be at odds with biblical wisdom. The greatest sources of human wisdom are insufficient for life's most difficult circumstances. But if that's true, where should we turn? Where do we go? We see in verses 12 through 23 that we must depend on God for wisdom to face the impossible, because God is the source of all wisdom. God is the source of all wisdom. So in response to the wise man's admission that no one can show the dream to the king except the gods, King Nebuchadnezzar becomes angry and furious and commands that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And in obedience to this decree, Nebuchadnezzar's guard immediately begins to go and do what he's asked, putting to death an entire group of people, including Daniel and his three friends, Because the king is simply angry. And here I just want to pause for a moment and acknowledge that while I think we're living in something closer to Babylon than Israel, we need to be careful that we as American Christians don't too overly identify with being persecuted. Although Christianity is losing influence, we don't live under a dictator like Daniel and his friends, who at a moment's notice can say, kill you, and the guard actually listen and wipe out an entire people. Although the church is being pushed to the margins of our society, we don't have to meet in secret and we don't have to hide what we're teaching. Although Christians are sometimes maligned for their faith, we have yet to be imprisoned and we don't face death. And so while we are increasingly experiencing marginalization, our experience is unlike the people of Daniel in some very real ways. And it's unlike our brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted all around the world, who are forced to meet in secret and are risking their very lives to profess faith in Christ. And so we should be careful to recognize that difference. But that being said, once Nebuchadnezzar's order goes out, uh, the captain of the king's guard, Ariok, comes to Daniel's door and begins to say, we're going to put you to death. And Daniel, in the face of such danger, remains calm, cool, and collected. As our passage says, he exercises prudence and discretion. Daniel is the exact opposite of Nebuchadnezzar. And I think we can all agree that if we have the choice of what kind of human leader we want, we want men like Daniel, patient, wise, and steady, not men like Nebuchadnezzar, brash, arrogant, and impulsive. And so with wisdom, Daniel asked the captain of the king's guard, why is the king's command to kill all the wise men so urgent? We don't get to hear the conversation, but Captain Ariok explains. and Daniel somehow gets audience with the king, says, I'll provide the dream and in its interpretation, but give me some time. And Oddly enough, the king agrees this time. And so now with the permission to find the dream and in its interpretation from his God, Daniel immediately goes to his friends and he asks them to seek the mercy of God concerning the mystery of the king's dream, so that they and all the wise men would not perish. In other words, Daniel's first instinct in the face of such an impossible situation that everyone else has failed is to go to prayer and to call his friends to pray with them, trusting that God and his mercy will answer their prayer. And God does. He reveals the mystery to Daniel. And before we move on, I just want us to notice again Daniel's very first instinct in an impossible situation is to pray. Yet sadly for so many of us, prayer is our last resort. Prayer is what we do only when we've come to the end of our rope. Only when we've tried everything else and realized there's nothing we can do. Let's just think about some of the anxieties I mentioned earlier. We worry about whether the church will persevere in America. But how often have we prayed that God would preserve his church, that the church would persevere and even experience revival. We worry about whether our church will reach the next generation, but how much time have we spent praying that the Lord would use our church to reach the next generation and even to send Christians from the next generation to join us? We worry about what to do when someone asks us a question that would compromise our conscience how much time have we spent praying to the Lord, asking for wisdom to face such situations? And the answer for some of you, I know, is incredibly encouraging. you spend countless hours praying about these things, praying on your own, praying with your spouse, praying with others. Yet many of us, I'm concerned that our prayerlessness reveals our independence from God rather than our dependence on him. I'm concerned we view prayer as an optional add-on to ministry rather than to see prayer as the essence of gospel ministry, which is why one of our church's values is to be dependent on the Spirit. We aim to depend upon the Holy Spirit to empower and direct our ministry. And one of the most significant ways that we can depend upon the life-giving Spirit is through being constant in prayer. But I'm haunted by this quote I found in Ray Ortland's little book, The Gospel. I know of only one infallible way to get a church praying and to keep praying for the power of God to come down. We need to fail. And we need to fail so badly and so obviously that we find out how much we really do trust ourselves rather than God. And listen, if we need to fail in order to bring us to our knees in dependence upon God, then I welcome us failing as a church in that way. And yet, as our pastor, I would spare us that sorrow. And so one particular practice I want us to consider is simply attending our church's prayer meeting. We meet once every other month to pray together on Sunday evenings. And personally, after our weekly gathering to worship God and to encourage one another, I view our prayer meeting as the most important thing we do together as a church. And the reason is because that's where we come together as a church to express our dependence upon God, to recognize that unless he builds the house, we labor in vain. Now, I recognize there are all sorts of legitimate reasons for people to miss a prayer meeting. Uh, Maybe the kids are sick and they need your care. Maybe family is in town that weekend and you need to be present with them. Maybe your non-believing neighbors are only available that Sunday for dinner. Or maybe your pastor scheduled the next prayer meeting for Super Bowl Sunday. An oversight... (laughs) that we will correct tomorrow. But one possible reason we need to consider personally is that we might say with our lips that prayer is essential to gospel ministry. But our life reveals we don't actually believe that. And so consequently, we don't prioritize prayer appropriately. The pastor and blogger Tim Challies puts it this way. Few people want to be a part of a church that doesn't pray, but few people want to attend a prayer meeting. You should ponder this conundrum. Now, it would be easier for me to say, you should come to our next prayer meeting, but that would be to go beyond what Scripture says and what we've committed to do together. We have committed to pray with and for one another, and you can do that in a variety of ways. And at the end of the day, while it would be easier it would also be more burdensome to simply follow a list of rules. And our God doesn't simply want our behavior. He wants our hearts. And so instead of simply urging us all to come to the next prayer meeting, which I would be delighted if we all did, but instead of doing that, I want to invite each of us to consider our prayer life and what it reveals about our heart. And here's some questions to help with that. Have I given prayer the priority it deserves in my life personally? Why or why not? Have I given prayer with others the priority it deserves? Why or why not? And when I miss our church's prayer meeting, is it because I'm being faithful to other responsibilities God has given me? Or is it because I'm not giving prayer and community the priority it deserves? One of the primary ways we depend upon the Lord for wisdom is through prayer. That's why we gather together as a church every other month to do so. But why can we and why did Daniel go to the Lord for such wisdom with confidence he would receive it? Well, look at how Daniel responds to the Lord mercifully answering their prayer to provide the dream and wisdom for its interpretation in verses 20 through 23. Here we see that Daniel praises God because he's the one to whom wisdom and might belong. Daniel praises God because he's the one in control of the times and seasons. And he's the one who removes and sets up kings. Daniel praises God because he is the one who gives wisdom and knowledge. He's the one who reveals deep and hidden things. And he's the one who knows what's in the darkness. There's nothing beyond God's wisdom. Daniel's God, our God, is the source of all wisdom. And he's the God of all might. Putting these things together, the theologian J.F. Packer puts it this way in his classic work, Knowing God. Human wisdom can be frustrated by circumstantial factors outside of the wise person's control. But God's wisdom cannot be frustrated in that way. Because as Daniel says, God is the one to whom belong wisdom and might. Wisdom without power would be pathetic, a broken reed. And power without wisdom would be merely frightening. But God and boundless wisdom and endless power are united. And this makes him utterly worthy of our fullest trust. God's almighty wisdom is always active and never fails. And so if you have trusted Jesus, it's this God of all wisdom and all might that you can draw near to with great confidence that you will receive mercy, that you will receive grace in your time of need. And it's our great privilege then as beloved sons and daughters to carry everything to God in prayer because of Jesus. And so God urges us, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask me, and I'll give it generously to all without reproach. God, as the source of all wisdom, is not lacking, and he is generous to give wisdom to those who depend upon him. And so if we lack wisdom, why wouldn't we ask God for it? He has the wisdom we need, and he is generous to give it to those who ask. So when we face impossible circumstances, all we need to do is pray. All we need to do is ask God, and he will be faithful to provide us what we need. So if you ask him for the wisdom you need, we must depend on God for wisdom to face the impossible, because God is the source of all wisdom, and his wisdom never fails. Which brings us then to the third reason we must depend on God for wisdom to face the impossible, because only the kingdom of God will last forever. Only the kingdom of God will last forever. So in verses 24 through 45, we see that having received the dream and its interpretation, Daniel arranges through the king's guard to meet with the king, to make known the interpretation. And when Daniel stands before King Nebuchadnezzar, the very first thing the king asks, are you able to do what no one else is able to do? And Daniel's response is first to affirm the impossibility of what the king is asking. No, I can't do it. Your wise men couldn't do it. No one can do what the king has asked. But he then affirms that his God in heaven, who reveals mysteries, is able. And he has informed the king of what will happen in latter days. Now, when we hear the phrase latter days or last days, we almost inevitably jump to thinking about the end of the world, the return of Christ, or to the great tribulations the scriptures warn about. However, in Daniel, latter days simply means sometime after Nebuchadnezzar, including some things that are now in the past and some things that are still future to us. And in the New Testament, when we read the word last days, it almost always is being described of the time in between Jesus's ascension to heaven and his final return. That is, We are living in the last days, and we've been living in the last days since Jesus ascended to the heavenly father. And so, Daniel having informed Nebuchadnezzar that God's intention is to reveal to him what's happening in later times, Daniel then goes on to recount the dream. Nebuchadnezzar saw a giant statue, one that was mighty and exceedingly bright, and its appearance was frightening. The head was "...pure of gold, and then the chest and arms were made of silver, and then the lower body was made of bronze, and then the legs of iron and the feet mixed iron and clay. As Nebuchadnezzar looked on the statue, he saw a stone that was not cut by human hand strike the statue on its feet. When it struck it, the statue fell apart, falling upon the stone, being smashed to pieces like chaff and blown away to the wind." Never to seen again. However, that stone that struck the statue's feet becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. And so we can begin to see why Nebuchadnezzar might be afraid and alarmed by this statue, by this dream. If the statue represents him, he may be wondering, Am I about to come to an end? Is someone about to kill me? Is my kingdom about to be overthrown? And so now, Daniel has miraculously revealed the dream through God's power and wisdom He then also provides the interpretation. It's not the whole statue that represents the king, but rather the head of gold that represents King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel actually calls this king, a pagan king, the king of kings, the one who has the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and the one who rules over all the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens. And yet for all this elevated language applied to a pagan king, He also points out the fact that there's still a king greater. Notice it's the God of heaven who has given him all these things. It is the God of heaven who has made Nebuchadnezzar the ruler of all. As great as Nebuchadnezzar is, he's the head of pure gold. There's still a king greater than him. Then Daniel moves on. The silver portion of the statue represents a second king that will come after him but it will be inferior to his kingdom. And then the bronze portion represents a third kingdom, which will rule over all the earth. And then the iron portion represents a fourth kingdom that will be as strong as iron, crushing all sorts of things. And yet, it will be a divided kingdom. Even as the toes were mixed with clay and iron, this kingdom, as strong as it is, is divided and fragile. And then finally, in the days of those kings... God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. But in fact, just as the stone destroyed all the kingdoms that preceded it, this heavenly kingdom of God will bring to an end all earthly kingdoms. And it, and only it, will last forever. Now last week I warned us that one of the erroneous ways for us to read and interpret the book of Daniel is to make it the subject of our debates. And already here in chapter 2, we are tempted to do that there has been endless debate about which earthly kingdoms correspond to the silver, bronze, and iron. However, we need to note that unlike chapter 8, where the interpretation given to Daniel will specifically mention kingdoms like Media, Persia, and Greece, here the interpretation is purposely vague. And so as one Old Testament scholar points out, this means we need to entertain seriously the idea that the vision of Daniel does not intend to be precise as it writes the history before it occurs. In other words, though it starts in the concrete present in Babylon, it's a wrong strategy to proceed through history and associate the different stages of the statue with particular empires. The vision intends to communicate something more general, but also something more grand. God is sovereign, and he is in control, despite all present conditions. Or another commentator puts it this way, the dream's main message is clear, and it transcends all historical reference for the kingdoms. The message is simple. All human kingdoms will ultimately be destroyed and overtaken by the everlasting kingdom of God. And just as a note, the all includes the kingdom of America. The only kingdom that lasts forever is the kingdom of God. And we know when the everlasting kingdom of God broke into human history, Well, One pastor describes the breaking end of this kingdom so beautifully, I'm going to quote him at length. Some 500 years after Daniel, Jesus comes to earth. The kingdom of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece are long gone. Rome now rules the world. And the angel Gabriel announces Jesus' birth. He, Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Some 30 years later, then Jesus begins his ministry and he proclaims the good news of God and says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. With Jesus preaching and miracles, he brings the kingdom of God into the world. And then Jesus would go on to say, it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come to you. And yet, Just as it was that the stone crushed the statue and then grew into the mountain, filling the whole earth, the kingdom of God does not come fully in Jesus' lifetime. The Roman kingdom is still in charge. In fact, when Roman soldiers crucified Jesus, it looks like the kingdom of God has failed. But the sovereign God can turn even defeat into victory. He raises Jesus from the dead. And when the disciples meet the risen Lord, they ask him, Lord, is this the time? When we'll receive the kingdom of Israel? And they don't realize yet that God's kingdom will come in two stages. The first stage, the already of the kingdom of God, when Jesus comes and his first coming. And the second, the not yet, the fullness of God's kingdom when Jesus comes again. And so Jesus replies, it's not for you to know. The times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority and so instead of satisfying their curiosity about when the fullness of the kingdom will come, he instead gives them a mission. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and where? To the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God begins to spread to the ends of the earth. It sounds just like the stone in the dream, doesn't it? The stone that struck the statue becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And as a matter of fact, Jesus also sees himself as the stone. At one point, Jesus asked the people, Have you never read in Scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. It will crush anyone on whom it falls. In the dream, the stone struck the feet of the statue and crushed them. And then the whole statue toppled and fell on the stone and was broken to pieces. The stone is Jesus. But when it begins to grow and fill the whole earth, it's also his kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is coming. It will replace all human kingdoms. And although there are still human kingdoms that can be cruel, that can be evil, the good news is this. The kingdom of God that has come with Jesus' first coming will come in perfection at his second coming. Just before Jesus was crucified, he told the high priest, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and come in on the clouds of heaven. And even now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling his church from his heavenly throne. And when Jesus comes again, his kingdom will replace all earthly kingdoms, and it will fill the whole earth. And as we read in Revelation eleven fifteen, 15, The kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of the Lord and his Messiah. He will reign forever and ever. So dear brothers and sisters, why would we want to go anywhere else for wisdom? Though his kingdom may appear small, fragile, weak, insignificant, like it's even failed, his kingdom will grow. It will fill all the earth. We must simply be patient, waiting for it. Though Jesus appears to be both weak and foolish to the world, the reality is Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So let's look to Christ. Let's trust Christ. Let's hope in Christ. Let's ask Christ for the wisdom we need to face the impossible. Because only Christ can give us what we need. Only Christ and his kingdom will last forever. His kingdom is already here. It is advancing and it will prevail. It shall not fail. What more could we look for? What more could we hope for? If you're not a Christian this morning, you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, I want you to understand that all the kingdoms of the earth will fall. They will be destroyed by Christ and his kingdom. And unless you heed Jesus' invitation, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. It will crush anyone on whom it falls. That is your end if you do not respond in repentance and faith. But that doesn't have to be the end of your story. When Jesus announces his kingdom, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so if you'll turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of marvelous light. You can be transferred from the kingdom of this world that will come to an end and be transferred to the kingdom of Christ that will last forever. That's what Christ came to do for you. Through His perfect life, through His death in your place, and through His victorious resurrection from the grave. He came to bring an everlasting kingdom, and He invites you to be a part of it. And so I'd plead with you, if you don't know Jesus, or maybe you're not sure whether you know Jesus, then don't let your end be destruction. Instead, talk with someone today, talk with me or any of our members after the service. We would love to make sure that you know whether you're in his kingdom or out. And we would love to help you see how you can be a part of Christ and his kingdom forevermore. We must depend on God for wisdom To face the impossible, because only the kingdom of God will last forever. And finally, we see in verses 46 through 49 that we must depend on God for wisdom to face the impossible, because our dependence displays God's glory. Our dependence displays God's glory. In response to hearing Daniel share the dream and its interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar's alarm washed away. The the dream didn't mean that his kingdom was about to be overturned. In fact, he's the best kingdom. He's the gold. And the dream is only meant to tell him that there is a kingdom greater than his, God's heavenly kingdom. And so now that his alarm is gone, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that Daniel's God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Now, we'll see as the story continues that this doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar is converted here. As a good polytheist, Nebuchadnezzar is more than willing to acknowledge the power of foreign deities. And yet, nevertheless, because Daniel depended on his God and gave God the credit for all that he had done, the glory of God was put on display for this pagan king. And Nebuchadnezzar was willing in this moment to testify to the wisdom and power of the God of Israel, of our God. Further, Daniel's even honored for what God has done through him, leading to him getting a promotion. He's now in the court of Babylon, reigning over all Babylon, second to the king. And he even gets his friends' promotions. They're going to be authorities throughout the provinces of Babylon. And though Scripture promises that God will get glory, it never promises that we'll receive the same honor that Daniel and his friends did. In fact, we may not. Daniel and his friends didn't always. However, when we do depend on God, when we ask God to do only what he can do, and then he comes through, it displays his glory. And this is what we are created for. The very purpose of every one of your lives is to give glory to God. That's why we were created. And so when we depend upon him, We actually are fulfilling the purpose of our lives. We're displaying his glory when he comes through. And so I'd ask you this morning, what are you currently asking God to do that only he can do? Something that only God can do so that it would demonstrate your dependence on him and as a result, display his glory. And when God does come through, when God does work in you and through you, when God answers your prayer, do you take credit for yourself, or like Daniel, do you give God the glory? Because at the very core, when we depend upon God, our dependence displays his glory. And so while living in exile, living in a world that's not our home, in a kingdom that's not our home, because our home is in heaven, because our home is the kingdom of God that lasts forever forever, The reality is we're going to face seemingly impossible situations and we will not be able to handle them on our own. And so instead, we must depend on God for wisdom to face these impossible situations because our dependence displays God's glory because only the kingdom of God will last forever because God is the source of all wisdom and because even the greatest human wisdom is insufficient. And so as we conclude our time together in God's Word, I want to invite you to consider what God has been saying to you through His Word. And as always, I hope this isn't the last time you think about that, but maybe even over lunch or dinner or throughout the week, you talk with people about what God was stirring in you through His Word. Perhaps these questions would help. What sources of human wisdom are you overly dependent on? Hard work, creativity, technology? Something else. Whatever it is, confess your dependence on human wisdom rather than on God, and He will show you mercy. Second, how can you give greater priority to depending on God for wisdom through prayer? Whatever that is, commit to doing it. Commit to coming to our next prayer meeting. Commit to pray through our church directory. Commit to ask God for wisdom where you're lacking it. Commit to ask God to be merciful in the situations you're anxious about. Third, <clears throat> how does the already but not yet nature of the kingdom of God give you hope in the present? I ask today that God would help you to remember that all the kingdoms of this world will fall and that only his kingdom will last forever, a kingdom that you're a part of if you're in Christ. And finally, What are you asking God to do that only he can do as a demonstration of your dependence and as a display of his glory? Hope in Christ and trust in Christ enough to ask him to do what only he can. Let's take a moment to consider what God is saying to us through his word. Heavenly Father, we confess that all of us are tempted to look for wisdom in the wrong places. And so we ask that by your Spirit, you would help us to depend on you instead. Give us the wisdom we need to be faithful to you, whatever situations we face, so that Christ would be glorified. And help us to long to pursue all this, Because Jesus is wisdom made flesh. Because Jesus is how you dwell with us. Because Jesus has purchased all that we need through his life, death, and resurrection to pursue life and godliness and faithfulness to you. So please help us to depend on you, trusting you to do what only you can do.